morning. If you still have your Bible, Sandy, would you please turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 12 to 28. This will be the last of the series in this wonderful book. And the title of our message for this morning is The Model Christian Walk. The Model Christian Walk. Two ways. Uh, two weeks ago, we looked at the first part of chapter 5, verses 1 to 11, which dealt primarily with the theme of the day of the Lord, the day of wrath, which refers to that lengthened period of time extending from after the rapture of the church and all the judgments following this event on the earth right to the very end of the millennial reign of Christ, those 1,000 literal years when Jesus will restore Israel's kingdom here on this earth. And the apostles' words of comfort were these, Don't look for the wrath of God to come. You won't be here, because no Christian was appointed unto wrath but unto salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, we're told in verse 9. The Christian is to constantly be looking upward for the Lord's return, for the rapture. In light of that thought, the apostle then proceeds to give some additional insight as to how the Christians should live until the Lord's return. And so I've decided to call this part of our message, the model Christian walk, the model Christian walk. If we read this section very carefully, we will soon discover that it is loaded with the commandments of the Lord, 20 of them to be exact. In the first two verses, verses 12 and 13, the Apostle Paul draws the attention to the church's responsibility towards their leaders, those who labor among them, those who have been given the oversight by the Spirit of God. Hebrews 13, 7 also reminds us of this very same thing. Remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow considering the end of their conversation. Those who are over you here refers to the elders, those whom God has appointed to watch over the flock. Their responsibility has ever been threefold. Number one, feed the flock. Their most pressing obligation is to teach the word, to edify the believer in the things of the Lord. They are to admonish, reprove, rebuke, Correct, if necessary, not only publicly, but privately also. They are to be ready to give sound counsel, wise counsel, to the flock to comfort them and to edify them. Or, in other words, build them up in their faith. Number two, they are to protect the flock, again in relation to the word, to protect the body from false doctrines and practices and from those whom the Bible calls wolves in sheep's clothing. 
Though they must never rule with a tyrannical attitude nor lord it over the Lord's people, they must nevertheless be prepared to give their life for the flock. And number three, they must lead the flock. Lead by example, by their faith, by their life, by their practices. This must be an example and an encouragement to the church. These are the real overseers in the church, and they are easily recognized by the work they do. And the church is to know them, that is to recognize them and accept them as such. Then the church is to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Now, this sometimes can be a very touchy issue with the Lord's people. Sometimes the Lord's people may dislike the personality of those who have the oversight over them. Perhaps they may think that so-and-so is really not a very good choice because of such and such. Perhaps he is of the wrong physical status and appearance. But look here, what does the word say? We beseech you to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. It is their work, their labor of love in a particular part of the vineyard that sets them apart. It is for their work's sake that we are to esteem them highly. They may be very poor golfers. They may be lousy joke tellers. They may have very little social status. They may even have very poor taste and fashions. But none of these are an issue. It is their work amongst the flock in the word that we are to esteem them for. And so we are to be at peace among ourselves. We are not to let the little things get into the way of our love for one another. Now the Apostle Paul turns to the church's personal responsibilities to one another in general. In verses 14-15, we see the Christian social response towards his fellow man. Though these two verses deal with the believer's relationship to his fellow brethren, it is also his responsibility towards his fellow man. Number one, warn them that are unruly. There will always be those in the church who will be rebellious, self-centered, wanting to do things their own way, and in general causing tension amongst the assembly of believers. They may at times have a very pleasant smile and a nice disposition until, of course, their course of action is thwarted. They are to be warned. They are to be taken aside and cautioned about their hindrances to happy fellowship. This is every believer's responsibility hard though it may be. Number two, comfort the feeble-minded. There are those who may be timid, faint-hearted, or lacking confidence or boldness. The admonition to us is to comfort them, to encourage them, perhaps to pursue a course of action which they might otherwise not be able to do on their own. Build up their confidence Remind them that I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. Philippians 4.13 Number three, 
support the weak. This is a twofold theme here. There are many in the church that are weak, either physically because of injuries or infirmities of old age. And there are many who are weak spiritually. I believe our responsibility is the same in either case. If it is within our power, we are to support the weak, help them to bear their infirmities, assist them in whatever we make and whatever way we can when we recognize their need. Number four, be patient toward all men. Notice how each subsequent commandment of the Lord becomes increasingly more difficult. There are many things which may try our patience, not only in the world, but in the church as well. Patience does not come naturally, nor does it come easily. Often the Lord must send affliction and tribulation our way to teach us patience. In light of that, therefore, we must endeavor, where possible, to be patient toward all men. Ephesians 4, 1-3 tells us, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Then we come to the fifth and sixth social response of the believer towards his fellow man. See that none render evil for evil unto any man, but ever follow that which is good both amongst yourselves and to all men. And oh, how hard this one is. Oh, how hard it is not to retaliate, to not get even for that last jab. Though we are not to be a doormat so that everyone can walk all over us, we are also not to let our old nature take over. Romans twelve seventeen also says, Recompense to no man evil for evil. Sometimes it is much better just to leave things as they are than to pursue the matter in which we suffered injury. Though our responsibility is to let our brother know the nature of our hurt, yet we are to forgive him or her in the matter and to not retaliate when the opportunity presents itself. We should always have before us the example of our blessed Savior who never retaliated for any personal hurt done to him. After all, where would we be today if he had retaliated against those who were about to crucify him on Calvary's cross? We must, in general, do our duty and that which is pleasing to God. And what is pleasing to him in this case, is to render evil for evil unto no man, but to follow or do that which is good. Six exhortations for the Thessalonian believers 
as their social responsibilities towards their fellow man, believer or non-believer alike. In the next few verses, 16 to 22, the Apostle Paul gives them eight exhortations for personal edification. Eight exhortations which will help them to greatly mature in their faith. We might call this section the essentials for personal growth. Rejoice evermore, verse 16. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Quench not the spirit. Despise not prophesyings. Prove all things. Hold fast that which is good and abstain from all appearances of evil. Rejoice evermore, verse 16. What a test of faith. The believer who is able to rejoice even in the midst of severe afflictions is the believer whose faith is placed on the right object, the Lord himself. You see, if our faith is ever placed on circumstances that they are going to get better, then our faith is going to certainly waver, and our joy will waver as well. But if we have our faith focused solely on the Savior and our security in Him, then our joy will be full. The Scriptures tell us that the joy of the Lord is our strength, Nehemiah 8.10. How can we then be strong if our joy wavers from circumstance to circumstance. We can't. Our fellowship has to be right with our Savior in order for our joy to be full. And if it is, then we too will be able, like Paul and Silas, to rejoice in the Lord even in the midst of a dark prison. Then we are to pray without ceasing, verse 17. This is what bonds our fellowship with the Lord. It is impossible to have a close relationship with anybody with, without intimate communication. A husband who loves his wife will talk with her, walk with her. They will express their feelings one to another. They will know each other's desires, each others' attitudes towards many things. They will know each other's ways and even each other's thoughts sometimes. So too will be the case with the saint who prays without ceasing. His or her walk with the Lord will be such that he will know his Savior's mind and will be assured of his Savior's presence even in the midst of great affliction or severe infirmities. Because of that intimate fellowship, the saint is, saint's joy of the Lord becomes his constant strength. But all of that must be nurtured. It does not come naturally. Discipline and daily prayer and communion with God takes effort. And so the believer must endeavor to make prayer an integral part of his spiritual walk. 
He must always be in a state of readiness to commune with the Lord. And then in verse 18, we see a direct relationship between verse 17 and verse 18. For the believer who will pray without ceasing will soon discover that his prayers will eventually pour out in thanksgiving to God. It cannot be otherwise. Giving thanks in everything will soon make us realize that all circumstances are under God's control. God, who is sovereign and sees the end from the beginning, is sovereign even in the circumstances which enter our lives. Though there may be certain events that are of a tragic nature, which God allows to come our way, the fact that he allows them to come have a purpose. We who are finite beings cannot possibly see or understand the possible good that may come out of them. So many lives are interconnected with ours, and therefore so many possible results are probable. We need not struggle with the whys and the why-nots, but rather give God thanks, even in the midst of these afflictions, believing that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose, we are told in Romans 8.28, and to be persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Romans 8, 38-39 And let us remember Job's words when he said in Job 2, verse 10, What? Shall we receive good at the hand of God, and shall we not receive evil? Then in the next verse, verse 19, the Apostle Paul exhorts the Thessalonians to quench not the Spirit. How can a believer quench the Spirit of God? There is a grieving the Spirit, and there is a quenching the Spirit. Grieving the Spirit has to do with sin in the life of the believer, doing things that are contrary to the will of God. Grieving the Spirit is possible also by having the wrong attitudes, bitterness, jealousy, envy, strife, etc. All of these can displease God and therefore grieve His Spirit. Unconfessed sin can grieve the Spirit also. But quenching the Spirit has to do with our response or lack of response to the Spirit's leading. When we fail to respond to his guidance, we can quench the Spirit. We can turn him off, so to speak. Perhaps he may be leading us to do a certain work, to visit a certain sick saint, to witness to a certain lost neighbor, friend, or stranger. If we fail to respond positively to him, we quench him, we ignore him, we turn him off. Don't do it, says Paul. And if we are in tune with God, if we commune with him in prayer, 
and read his word daily, we can soon recognize more easily the leading of the Spirit in our lives. He, by the way, will never lead contrary to the word of God. This, of course, all ties in nicely with the next exhortation, verse 20. Despise not prophesyings. When the word of God is preached or taught, we are not to get tired of it or to dislike it. Sometimes preachers can get boring. Sometimes preachers can get long-winded and can even put an assembly to sleep. But this is not a sufficient excuse for us to despise all preaching and teaching of the word. For it is through the preaching of the word that our faith increases, and through the teaching of the word that the saints are edified, encouraged, comforted, rebuked, reproved, warned, enlightened, and saved. Romans 10, 13-15 reminds us, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. And then also in Romans 10, 8 to 10, we read, But what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart, that is, the word of faith which we preach, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Those who despise prophesying will soon stop hearing the word and, of course, stop growing in the grace and the knowledge of the Savior. So don't despise prophesyings. Next, the Apostle Paul cautions in verse 21 to prove all things, hold fast that which is good. This, of course, was his constant concern, as it should be ours also, that the saints would not be deceived, that they would not fall prey to false teaching. He wanted them to prove all things in relation to doctrine, to prove or to test these doctrines, to see if they are correct. He wanted them to test everything which they heard in light of scriptures. Does it line up? If so, hold on to it. If not, discard it. Don't give it a second thought. All the apostles warned the flock about this danger. John wrote in 1 John 4, 1, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. In the book of the Revelation, our Lord himself exhorted the church of Philadelphia, symbolic of the true church, 
to hold on to the truth of Scripture. Revelation 3.11 Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. Nothing so strikes home the importance of holding fast to the truth of Scripture then does this thought that comes from King David in one of his darkest hours. In Psalm 73, verses 23 to 26, he wrote, Nevertheless, I am continually with thee. Thou hast holden me by my right hand. Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel, and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside thee. My flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And let us not forget the Bereans in Acts 17, 14, or uh, Acts 17, verse 10, who searched the scriptures first to see whether what Paul was teaching was correct. These were more noble, writes Paul, uh, than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily, whether those things were so. In other words, it was written by Luke in Acts 17, 11. Next, the Apostle Paul exhorts in verse 22, abstain from all appearance of evil. Can you see the high standard that the Lord has set before his people? The Christian walk described here is the first book of the Thessalonians, in the uh, first book of the Thessalonians, is the model walk, the perfect walk. It is a walk or a life that is impossible to emulate or to have without the direct enabling power of God the Holy Spirit. The believer is to abstain from anything that may be interpreted as evil and may even cause someone else to stumble. I often think of this argument coming from the lips of the unbeliever. Well, if he's a Christian, I don't want anything to do with it. We can stumble others by the activities we indulge in, by the things we may say or even by the things we may not do. So we must make an effort to distance ourselves from anything that may be associated with evil. I may be again walking on some toes when I say these things, but they must be said. Drinking socially and playing the lottery can fall into this category. Therefore, we as believers, if we are walking with the Lord, will abstain from all appearance of evil. Now we come to a dynamic verse, verse 23. And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray, God, your whole spirit 
and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice, first of all, Paul's closing prayer requests that the God of peace sanctify them wholly. To sanctify means to be separate, to be set apart from that which is evil. In Scripture, we see three aspects of sanctification. Every Christian is sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Before we got saved, it was the Holy Spirit of God working within our lives that showed us our desperate situation, that showed us our lost estate, and consequently, our terrible need of a Savior, which then led to our trust in Christ. At that point, the Spirit of God came to dwell within us. We call it conversion. He now continues his work of sanctification through the entire life of the Christian. Another aspect of sanctification is positional sanctification. From the instant we believe, we are set apart to God in all the value of his shed blood on Calvary's cross. This sanctification is perfect. Hebrews 10:14 says, For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. We are complete in him. Nothing can be added. Nothing can be taken away. Christ himself is our sanctification and we are complete in him. But then the third aspect of sanctification is by the word. When our Lord was in the garden in John 17, 17, he prayed, Sanctify them through thy word. Thy word is truth. As we read and study the word of God, we discover the ways of God and the will of God. As we yield ourselves to the obedience of Scripture, it has a renewing effect upon our minds, our bodies, and it is thus that we become practically or experientially sanctified bit by bit each day. This is how we grow spiritually each day. This sanctification will not be complete until we finally meet the Lord. That is the thought which the Apostle has in mind here. When will our sanctification be complete? All three aspects. When we actually meet him face to face. We know that when he shall appear or shall we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is says 1 John 3:2 Our entire spirit which is God conscious our soul which is self-conscious and our body which is world conscious or physically conscious will then be glorified and will, we will, as Romans 8.29 tells us, we will be altogether 
conformed to the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. We will be exactly like him in character and in purpose and in mind. So Paul's prayer for the Thessalonians is that they, through the word of God, might be sanctified wholly and that their whole being, spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at his coming. God, who is faithful, will be able to do just that, to preserve them and us included blameless at his coming. And so, in conclusion, Paul reminds the brethren to pray for them and to greet one another with a holy kiss, which is and was the custom. He finishes this epistle with a solemn charge that this letter be read to all the holy brethren so that all may be acquainted with the scriptures and thereby grow in them. And so ends the epistle to 1 Thessalonians, verse 28. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Five lovely chapters to a precious body of new believers, written originally for their edification, but to every believer today, it is just as necessary and just as relevant. The Apostle Paul would soon after this first epistle write yet another one to them entitled 2 Thessalonians. And Lord willing, we may be able to look at that epistle also in some future date, if he be not come. But now before I step down from this platform and before I close, I must ask you this question. Are you a Christian? Because if you are not, then all of these commandments which we have just studied will be an impossibility in your life. You must first have the indwelling of of the Spirit of God to enable you, to sanctify you through the Word of God, and to be able to live a life in Christ which would be pleasing to God. He is still calling all those who would be saved. And his call to everyone today is still the same. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Let's pray. Father, we thank thee so much for this precious book, 1 Thessalonians. We thank thee for thy faithful servants, for those wonderful apostles of God who gave their lives for the gospel, so that we may have it in our hands this morning to read it, to learn of it, to be saved, and because of it, be in glory someday. Father, we thank thee for the Lord Jesus Christ and his work on Calvary's cross, and we thank thee that thy word teaches that by grace are we saved, through faith alone in Jesus Christ. Part us now with thy blessings, we ask, and if the Lord be not come, may it please thee once again to bring us together next Lord's Day around his table. For we always ask it in his name and for his glory. Amen. Amen.